Hello, welcome to Never Forget Radio. Today we are going to attempt a live episode on the Battle of Algiers. The Directorate for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict cordially requests the presence of your company in the Pentagon screening room on August 27, 2003. And it reads... How to win a battle against terrorism and lose the war of ideas. Children shoot soldiers at point-blank range. Women plant bombs in cafes. Soon the entire Arab population builds to a mad fervor. Sound familiar? The French have a plan. It succeeds tactically, but fails strategically. To understand why, come to a rare showing of this film. Oh, it's so hard to Welcome to Never Forget Radio, where, from the comfort of your own home or your device, and from the safety of the future, we can revisit the memory of 9-11, of George W. Bush, and of all the years associated with both since. It's been over a decade of disappointment, failure, and disaster. I'm no expert, but I'll be your host as we explore our recent past and try to reclaim it. Let's roll. Welcome back to Never Forget Radio, the podcast dedicated to re-exploring the post-9-11 era through a left-type, aspiring feminist lens. Today we look at a film that was made in the 1960s about the 1950s Algerian War for Independence from France, the Battle of Algiers. We're averaging 4.2 incidents per day. This includes bombings and attacks on individuals. We say there's a minority which rules through terror and violence. We must isolate and destroy them. Academy Award nominations, Best Screenplay, Best Foreign Film, Best Director. It's difficult to start a revolution. Even more difficult to sustain one. And still more difficult to win one. Should France remain in Algeria? If your answer is yes, then you must accept all the consequences. containing not a single frame of documentary or news footage. A film by Gilo Pontecorvo with music by Ennio Morricone. The Battle of Algiers. The Battle of Algiers. From the book by Saadi Yassef. Based on actual events. First, a brief introduction to the film. Algeria was colonized by France in the 19th century. After World War II, a revolution began. 
From 1954 to 57, the largest city, Algiers, experienced uprising, terrorism, and counterterrorism, and occupation by the French army. Um, after independence was achieved in 1962, a group of Algerian revolutionaries turned film producers searched for a leftist European filmmaker to help them dramatize their story. Uh, directed by Italian Gilo Pontecorvo, The Battle of Algiers was filmed in Algiers and released in 1966. It belongs in the mid-20th century Italian movement, film movement neorealism, which features a documentary feel non-professional actors, newsreel-like group footage, and a focus on faces rather than characters. Uh, it was a conscious political attempt to get away from the Hollywood blockbuster heroic paradigm and tell stories about the people, uppercase. Uh, the film, this particular film has characters, but no real protagonist. Long stretches of it are group scenes and crowd shots intended to look like news broadcasts. And almost a side effect of Pontecorvo's political commitment to neorealism, anti-protagonism, documentariness, is the tendency of both left and right groups to take the Battle of Algiers as a tactical manual rather than a semi-fictional story. This episode is a follow-up on the joint Humble Mumbles Never Forget Radio episode about the sorrow and the pity and Palestine. In that episode, we focused on comparing stories of the French resistance to the Palestinian resistance, and on the enduring similarities between occupying and resistance groups across wide boundaries of time, ideology, and narrative. Created by a creative team that included former guerrillas from not just the Algerian independence movement, which is depicted, but also former members of the French and Italian resistance against the Germans, including directo Gilo Pontecorvo. This is extended to the character of the colonel leading the counterinsurgency, Colonel Mathieu, we're going to talk a lot about. Uh, he's played by French actor, the only professional actor in the production, Jean Martin. Both the actor and character fought in the French resistance against the Germans only a decade earlier. Additionally, both 1960s films contain an intended meaning against other 1960s uh, occupations and resistances, and we propose in both episodes against future unimagined yet occupations and resistances. The connection, for example, to the Vietnam War is made overtly twice in the Battle of Algiers. Colonel Macho's service record includes Indochina, and he references Dien Ben Phu, uh, a battle which the French lost to the Vietnamese, precipitating the American intervention. He says this time the French will win. The following clip of the film occurs when one of the Algerian leaders is captured and Colonel Macho, the leader of the counterinsurgency, and him hold a joint press conference. Bon, allez, les photographes, terminés. Monsieur Benoumini, ne trouvez-vous pas plutôt lâche d'utiliser les sacs et les couffins de vos femmes pour transporter vos bombes, ces bombes qui font tant de victimes innocentes Isn't it cowardly to put bombs in women's baskets and blow up cafés Et vous Ne vous semble-t-il pas bien plus lâche de larguer sur des villages sans défense vos bombes au napalm qui tuent mille fois plus d'innocents Évidemment, avec des avions, ça aurait été beaucoup plus commode pour nous. Donnez-nous vos bombardiers, monsieur, et on vous donnera le couffin. Doesn't it seem to you even more cowardly to drop napalm bombs on defenseless villages so that there are a thousand times more innocent victims Of course, if we had your airplanes, it would be a lot easier for us. Give us your bombers and you can have our baskets. Mr. Ben Hedy, in your opinion, 
Does the FLN still have some chance of defeating the French army? Selon moi, le FLN a beaucoup plus de chances de battre l'armée française que celle-ci n'en a d'arrêter le cours de l'histoire. We have more chance of defeating the French army than they do of changing the course of history. The interview scene allows Pontecorvo to make clear the culpability of the French people, press, and government in the ongoing violence, which is not simply the responsibility of rogue soldiers or colonists. This exchange occurs just before a graphic depiction of torture, including waterboarding, electric shock, drowning, uh, thus framing that torture and the war not as the result of the simplistic villainy of the soldiers, but the more complex culpability of an entire nation. Over and over in the film, choices are made to not villainize the French characters, even while the soldiers torture and kill. I think the film's humanity towards its occupiers, who are at the same time clearly in the historical wrong, and also constantly shown as racist, classist, and war doing war crimes, uh, I think this is one of its the film's strengths. It protects the film from becoming a tract, Making the French leader a non-monster, possibly an anti-villain on the TV trope scale, is not the only tactic of the films to level the scales as much as possible. The same mournful music is played to commemorate both sides as victims of terrorism after bombings in the Algerian Casbah and bombings in the French Quarter. French young people are shown both sympathetically at the bar and unsympathetically taunting Algerians in the street, but they're not shown any one way. Uh, the Algerians are also not always portrayed positively. Sometimes they're romantic freedom fighters, and sometimes brutal Robespierre's beating people to death in the street. I most want to focus on the torture scene, which, along with its depiction of waterboarding, also includes the near-realist style. Uh, and so there are lots of close-up shots of French soldiers emphasizing their youth and their blank shock slash acceptance of what's going on, rather than a callous villainy. The temptation to portray soldiers as evil must have been enormous, especially with a cast and crew of former revolutionaries. You'd expect both Algerian and 60s lefto student audiences would not have minded that kind of portrayal. Indeed, late 60s mainstream reporting on the film and its screenings emphasize audience glee at the French deaths in the film, and they're full of conservative fears that American blacks and European underclasses might use the film's tactics as insurrectionary blueprints. Overly negative portrayals of enemy foot soldiers would have even been par for contemporary mainstream American and European movies with their endless parade of blundering krauts and sadomasochistic homoerotic SS mustache twirlers. But instead, Pontecorvo shows the young soldiers smoking, staring into the space, unable to process what is happening, what they're doing. What welcome awaited these young men in 60s France, the losers of an unpopular war? Their reception in France was probably similar to the overwhelmingly negative uh, reception uh, experienced by American Vietnam veterans. The subtle, non-cackling portrayal of the soldiers actually serves to heighten the atrocities impact. This is one of the paradoxes about the film. Its relative balance has allowed it to survive for generations and be applied to many subsequent conflicts, whereas a more direct film that was more constantly, overtly anti-French might not have aged so well. But this balance might let down its Algerian subjects, who were also its actors and producers, a little. 
and it makes the film a bigger tent, classy, nuanced, canonical, that's more easily accessible to people like me than, say, future revolutionaries in other places who probably don't have access to Italian film classes or ponderous pods. And not just me and you listening, uh, but it, the film creates a slight wedged opening for people in power to feel that the Battle of Algiers can be partially belong to them as well. Imagine, for example, four L.A. cops in a squad car, windows down in the summer, bored and cruising, and N.W.A. comes on the radio. You can picture this moment of enticing hesitation right before they turn it all the way up. Frat kids finger shooting the paper planes. American fighter pilots blasting the clash as rock the Casbah in 1991 and in 2003. Or Bombs Over Baghdad by Outcast. Suburban teenagers getting high and quoting Full Metal Jacket. Imagine J. Edgar Hoover watching this film in in the late 1960s. That's really only comparable to a certain secret showing of the great dictator, uh, rumored to have taken place in Germany in 1940. Art from the left, and especially the non-white, will always have this cool factor and always be at risk of co-option. The following is a brief history of the left and right reception of the film, taken from the book Cinematic Terror, A Global History of Terrorism in Film, by Tony Shaw. For many activists, the Battle of Algiers provided exciting, concrete lessons in how to shape a violent revolutionary strategy. The film was reportedly required viewing for the 13 Black Panthers, including Asada Shakur, charged with conspiracy to bomb public places and murder police officers in New York in 1970. In the same year, Andreas Bader, co-leader of the German left-wing militant Red Army faction, is said to have orchestrated the infamous Dreierschalg, three bank robberies in West Berlin in just 10 minutes, after the model of guerrilla action depicted in the Battle of Algiers. Uh, Across the world in Sri Lanka, the notoriously media-shy Velupalai Prabhakaran, leader of the Tamil Tigers, let it be known that the Battle of Algiers was the cinematic blueprint for revolution. The Battle of Algiers appealed so much to these activists because, in their view, the film ultimately demonstrated the efficacy of terrorism in fostering political consciousness and change. The book continues with the history of the right in this film. Conversely, a range of governments and security agencies have for decades used the Battle of Algiers as a model for counter-revolution. Many have been moved to do so by the film's portrayal of Colonel Mathieu's successful decapitation of the FLN in 1957. Within a year of its release, the film was being screened in counterinsurgency classes at the School of Naval Mechanics in Buenos Aires, a secret torture center run by the Argentinian military that became notorious during the Dirty War, conducted against political subversives in the late 1970s and early 1980s. By the early 1970s, the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation was also screening prints for its operatives on the back of reports by police and politicians that the Battle of Algiers had become the Cinnabible for arsonists and terrorists. The Battle of Algiers then came to be studied by the British and Israeli armies in their searches for tactical clues against the IRA and PLO, respectively. In 2002, the American Bruce Hoffman, an advisor on counterterrorism strategy to several Western governments, wrote, I have long told soldiers, spies, and students to watch the Battle of Algiers if they want to understand how to fight terrorism. The film's main message, according to Hoffman, is that without intelligence and information, you can't effectively combat terrorism. 
Uh, and this history of the film's reception, thank you, Humble Bumble, brings us all the way up to the post-9-11 era. So we come back to the invitation quoted at the beginning of this episode, which is a real invitation to a Pentagon screening and discussion of the Battle of Algiers, which was held during the Iraq War on August 27, 2003. The flyer was quoted in What Does the Pentagon See in the Battle of Algiers uh, by Michael Kaufman in the New York Times, September 7, 2003, which continues... The idea came from a direct from the Directorate for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict, which a Defense Department official described as a civilian-led group with responsibility for thinking aggressively and creatively on issues of guerrilla war. The official said, "Showing the film offers historical insight into the conduct of French operations in Algeria, and was intended to prompt informative discussion on the challenges faced by the French." He added that the discussion was lively, and that more showings would probably be held. No details of the discussion were provided. The idea of the Pentagon screening this film fits with the portrayal of elegant and cultured Colonel Macho, who Western audiences, and never forget radio and humble mumbles, tend to identify with. There's even a moment of effective dramatic irony near the end of the movie when the Algerians and the audience think that Macho is about to be blown up, and Humble Mumbles was found to mumble. No! Because even with all the revolutionaries on parade in the film, both of us had come to respect and identify with the French leader. If half a century of leftist radicals identified so strongly with Ali Laplante and the FLN, it follows that the Pentagon screeners, as well as Israeli, British, or Argentine counterinsurgency students, and us, would admire Colonel Macho, an intellectual above liberals' petty concerns, a man who has seen it all and is making the most sound tactical decisions based on duty, not on ethical concerns, a man who has power but also understands those who don't. He does not hate or yell. He studies and implements. Tinker, tailor, soldier, sailor, spy, sleuth, gentleman, drapers, they'd and we'd like to think of themselves as dapper and unflappable, equally at home in a cell meeting or a board meeting, at the opera or the sex club. This is a mutability that perhaps Pontecorvo accomplishes with the film in retrospect, the former communist partisan, leftist director of anti-colonial themes and non-white actors. Pontecorvo, we give a pass. But beware the Rumsfelds and the Drapers and the Argentine intelligence officers and any self-idealizing power, anti-power code switchers. And us also, definitely us. There's been a lot written about the Battle of Algiers in the last 50 years. It was wildly popular, obviously, in independent, newly independent Algeria and in the restive 60s West. Um, and it seems that no one who's written about it since 2003 can resist leading with the ironic factoid that the Pentagon screened it in the middle of the Iraq War. Interest in the Pentagon's interest in the film increased interest in the film, and some sources I read speculate that this is what led to its re-release in theaters and reissue by the Criterion Collection, uh, which is how I originally saw the film and how Humble Mumbles and Never Forget Radio revisited it. The Washington Post, uh, Slate, and the New York Times all reported on the screening and quoted the invitation we used at the beginning of the episode. The articles read oddly because they were published before the Abu Ghraib scandal broke. Um, the screening took place apparently on August 26, 2003. Uh, just a chronological reminder of the timeline of the Bush era. Colin Powell appeared before the UN on February 5, 2003, 
to say that Iraq definitely had weapons of mass destruction. Shock and awe and the invasion of Iraq began March 20th, 2003. Mission accomplished was declared on May 1st. Uh, Saddam Hussein was captured in Operation Red Dawn December 13th, 2003. Uh, the Abu Ghraib torture scandal was forced, first reported in the media in late 2003, and the photos were published in early 2004. And the U.S. forces finally left Iraq never. Uh, actually, President Obama recently said more. Um, anyway, the articles from 2003 about the Pentagon screening feature a lot of careful framing, an unwillingness to admit that the Americans might descend to the level of the French. In the Pentagon's film festival published in Slate in August 27, 2003, Charles Freud, Charles Freud, I guess, wrote, At one point, Mathieu challenges the hostile French reporters with a question of his own. Should France remain in Algeria? If you answer yes, you must accept all the necessary consequences. Mathieu might as well be addressing the American military and the American public. Is the United States to remain in the Middle East? If so, what are the necessary consequences? Do they include working with former members of the Ba'athist secret police, as recent news stories have suggested? Do they include the nighttime invasion of Iraqi homes and the inevitable shooting of innocent civilians? Moral compromise, according to the film, was inherent in France's position in Algeria. The United States is not France, Iraq is not Algeria. But to listen to Mathieu is nevertheless to be challenged on whether moral compromise is also inherent in the American role in Iraq. This list of imagined possible American war crimes would soon seem very tame. The New York Times article, which we've already quoted, continues with a quote from historian Thomas Powers, who would later write a book on the Iraq War called The Fiasco. According to Thomas Powers, what's called a low-intensity war in Iraq brings terrible frustrations and temptations, the frustrating difficulty of finding and fixing an enemy who could be anyone, anywhere, and the temptation to resort to torture to extract the kind of detailed information from prisoners or suspects needed to strike effectively. How the United States is dealing with this temptation is one of the unknowns of the war. We are told that outright torture is forbidden, and we hope it is true. But as low-intensity wars drag on, soldiers tell themselves, we're trying to save lives. No one will ever know. This guy can tell us where the bastards are. Again, how the U.S. was dealing with this temptation would not long be unknown. Speaking about one of the French real-life generals, uh, Massou, who the fictional Mathieu was based on, terrible Iraq war enthusiast Christopher Hitchens uh, replied to these articles in Slate on January 2, 2004, in an article called Guerrillas in the Mist, Why the Iraq War is Nothing Like the Battle of Algiers. I would challenge anybody to find a single intelligent point of comparison between any of these events and the present state of affairs in Iraq. Today, it is Arab nationalism that is in crisis, while the political and economic and military power of the United States is virtually unchallengeable. Not even the wildest propaganda claims of the Ba'athist and Jihadist sympathizers allege that the tactics of General Massou are being employed by American General Abizaid or General Sanchez. This was written just before the pictures from Abu Ghraib were released. Those pictures reveal the truth about torture. 
Far from being used in extraordinary time-sensitive situations to obtain life-saving information, as former military figures claim and ethical devil's advocates ponder, torture is often not an investigative tactic, but a symptom of dehumanization. The indefinitely detained detainees at the prison had no time-sensitive information. Torturing them served no tactical purpose. It was used to terrorize, humiliate, and even entertain the captors. In an essay, Doing Torture in Film, Confronting Ambiguity and Ambivalence, published in Screening Torture, Media Representations of State Terror and Political Domination, from 2013, Marnia Lazrig criticizes the Battle of Algiers from the left, and she criticizes the balance that we positively spoke about earlier. She makes the case that torture was far more widespread and brutal than shown in the film, uh, noting that two of the women who acted in the film had been tortured during the war, and arguing against the film's portrayal of its use as an effective intelligence tactic. She wrote, The half-hearted, perfunctory representation of torture in the film manages to elide the significance of the practice for FLN militants. No dialogue between FLN militants alludes to torture. No psychological preparation to torture is alluded to. It is as if torture was not an issue for the guerrillas. Yet, memoirs written by former FLN militants indicate that torture was a nagging preoccupation. The film also fails to capture the climate of terror the torture creates. Instead, it focuses on the terror caused by the bombings conducted by both the FLN and the French right extremist underground. But no matter how frightening these explosions were, they did not occur every day or everywhere in the country. By contrast, torture was inflicted in detention centers, military posts, and police stations throughout the country, and its secrecy ensured its terror effect. Torture often resulted in the disappearance of its victims, which, along with the exposure of dead bodies and public summary executions, enhanced the climate of terror. In the end, torture is a military strategy, and an experience eludes the film. Torture is a limit experience, to quote Michel Foucault. It is an extreme experience that connotes the arbitrariness of the power that orders or condones it. The Abu Ghraib scandal, which depicted the kind of non-intelligence arbitrary torture she speaks about, had not yet broke publicly at the time of the Pentagon screening. But you've got to think that the people at the screening knew that torture was a key part of the American occupation, uh, just like it was in the French occupation. What did these, what did they feel when they watched the torture sequence? Did they have some kind of world-weary masculinist sneer? These leftists have no idea what the world's really like. What did they see? What did they see in the Battle of Algiers? Did the Pentagon attendees realize that the film portrays French terrorists, state terrorists, as well as Algerians? What did they make of the film's idea that occupying powers could win battles, but would inevitably lose wars? Multiple sources confirm that the screening took place, but none have any further information. Only the invitation. The Criterion Collection DVD includes seven documentaries. Uh, one of them is two former Bush administration counterterrorism officials, Michael Sheenan and Richard Clark, dryly discussing the film, emphasizing tactics far more than any ethical concerns. I'm fascinated by the concept of powerful military men thinking about this leftist film, partially because I find their detachment uncomfortably close to me and my pod's relationship to the film in the past. 
Like them, I can make big comparisons and analogies about the experiences portrayed and make tactical and strategic judgments safely, because my life contains no threats of state violence. The power that I hold might not be as overt as theirs, but like them, I am the state. As tempting as it is when you watch this film to emphasize with the revolutionaries, the fact of you watching it makes you more like the French. To close this episode, I want to go back to an exciting irony that this podcast once dedicated an entire episode to George W. Bush's reading habits while president. Uh, we previously explored the claim, the, his claim from an interview from 2006, primarily about Katrina, uh, where W. says that he's reading The Stranger by Camus. We always talk about what you're reading. As you know, there was a report that you have just read the works of a French philosopher. Can you the tell stranger. us your- Tell us the backstory of Camus. We explored the incongruity of Bush, a man considered moronic and illiterate uh, by millions of people, obsessively reading history books and engaging in annual reading contests with Karl Rove. I've, I've got an eclectic reading list. And now Camus. Well, that was a couple of books ago. My research into the Battle of Algiers has turned up accounts that President Bush's interest in Algeria didn't end with Camus, and that during the surge in the Iraq war, when additional troops were deployed to Iraq to engage in counterinsurgency, 2006, during this time, George Bush read a book by historian Alistair Horn, A Savage War of Peace, Algeria, 1954-1962, which was apparently recommended to the president by Henry Kissinger. The author Horn wrote in an article in the British newspaper The Spectator from 2012. To my surprise and gratification, I was invited by Bush to the White House and was allowed the best part of an hour discussing Algeria and Iraq. He was most courteous and, contrary to reports, well-read, as well as being an attentive listener. He asked me pointedly, how de Gaulle had got out of Algeria. I replied, not well. In fact, he lost his shirt. He lost everything. Looking discomforted, the president repeated twice, we're not going to pull out of Iraq. We're going to win. I reflected to myself that it was really too late now, five years down the lane in Iraq, to utilize the lessons of Algeria. That should have been done before going in. And the cautionary advice ought surely to have been, no, don't. Now the West is confronted with the agonizing problem of involvement in the ongoing mission, misery in Syria. But the sobering lessons of Algeria, Iraq, now Afghanistan behind us, one would hope the response in both London and Washington might this time be a resounding no, keep out, to both. Some final thoughts about all the studying of revolution and counterterrorism by the agents and the trainee student agents of power. One, the smartest guys in the room still fail, both in classroom ideology and battlefield applications i.e. an imperial education and background will always produce an out-of-touch imperial mindset. Empires have inherent vice, a self-defeating quality, and will fall based on internal contradictions. Two, that despite having all the best training and theoreticians, the powerful West still fails in achieving its objectives or choosing the right ones, i.e. the the well-trained rightist intelligentsia operatives have dogmatic, ideological, and political expediency-obsessed superiors, like George W. Bush, and so will always choose dubious tactics over sound long-term strategy. Battles can be won, but wars will be lost. Or three, that the powerful simply are succeeding, 
on different terms and battlefields than, than the ones we are talking about, such as personal economics, and that their tactics and strategies encompass the appearance of losing these battles in this way while they win on different planes. Thank you all planes. very much, Admiral Kelly, Captain Card, officers and sailors of the USS Abraham Lincoln, my fellow Americans. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. The whole concept of the film is that France won the Battle of Algiers, but lost the war in Algeria. In the last few minutes of the film, all of the characters we've spent time with completely disappear, and we see a crowd of anonymous, united Algerians protesting with flags and banners and chants, standing up to tanks and soldiers. Ennio Morricone's score builds as the camera focuses on faces and faces and finds a woman dancing, shouting, celebrating, and protesting all at once with a homemade flag as the narrator tells us that Algeria finally did win its independence. Fan. France has won the Battle of Algiers but lost the war in Algeria. But, by all accounts, France and Western corporate interests retained a strong economic influence in Algeria for decades after independence. And of course, modern American and European power is based on soft globalization rather than hard colonialism. Perhaps France won the battle, lost the war, but then subsequently won the peace. Though the paratroopers are long gone, does the occupation continue? Never Forget Radio is a production of Bookstyle Publications, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thanks to Moore College of Art, Strange Currencies Radio, Matt Kalaski, Chris Davis, Trina Muhammad, and Shawnee Taylor. Music for this episode is by Old Table and Ennio Morricone. Quotes performed by Humble Mumbles. Links to all things cited, plus more things, will be posted on the pod page. Send your Pentagon Film Club screening suggestions to NFR at Never Forget Radio at Bandcamp, Tumblr, iTunes, or... Never forget Pod on Twitter. Today's quote is from one of the otter sources we found on the Battle of Algiers. From the Battle of Algiers to Alien vs. Predator, Philosophical Approaches to the Globalization of Terror by Mani Tadayan, published in 2012 in the International Journal of Baudrillard Studies. Alien vs. Predator, in all its blockbuster glory, does not hide anything. No filmic insight is required to see the total enmity that defines the film and makes it interesting. Like Ali LaPointe, the Predators and aliens have no purpose besides fighting their enemies. The Predators have bred the aliens for the specific purpose of a fight to the death. In essence, the Predators and aliens have no independent existence. Their ontology is shared because neither can justify its existence without the war between them. Is the contemporary war on terror any different? Both sides would like to wipe out the other's existence and proclaim final victory. But can you wipe out half the basis of your own existence? On the other hand, can you raise the white flag and withdraw back into your own franchise and forget about the apocalyptic conflict that gave meaning to your and your enemy's existence? Ever since the end of the Cold War, 
Hollywood, along with the rest of humanity, has been looking for a replacement conflict to lend meaning to a world suddenly suffering from a radical loss of meaning, as said Baudrillard, 1994. Can we accept a world without existential conflict? Do we, like the predators, willfully breed enemies just so there is someone to fight? Thank you, and never forget.